0: When Beth and I got married, we moved to the city of Chicago, and we lived there for about two and a half years, and we had our first child, and we moved back uh, according to plan, and that's pretty much the only time anything we've ever planned has gone according to plan. But, um, but that did, and so we moved back, and we bought a house here in Florida in Boynton Beach, about 40 miles north of here, and we moved into our brand-new house with our brand-new baby girl, and my mother-in-law came to live with us, and she came for more than a week or a month. She lived with us for three or four years, and I'm going to say something that some of you are going to find very difficult to believe. I actually look back upon that very fondly, okay? That was a wonderful time for us. Many of you know my mother-in-law. She attends church here. She is an absolutely wonderful person. She is one of the most serving, giving people that I've ever known. She lets me make fun of her, which is a prerequisite to living with me, and she's a great cook. So, you know, I mean, all the ingredients for success were there, and it was a very successful living arrangement. The only thing... That was, I think, even remotely a point of tension between us, and I'm actually thankful for it because I had a lot of fun with it. I don't know about her, is that she is a kind of person who likes to store things up, and I'm a kind of person who likes to throw things out, okay? Okay. And I think that just comes from our different upbringings. I mean, she grew up in a time of great scarcity. She grew up in a family that didn't have a lot. And so as a result of that, to this day, she has sort of this Depression-era mentality which says, look, if it's not broken and it might be of some kind of use to someone somewhere on planet Earth at some point in the history of humankind, then you save it. Some of you do that, don't you? I grew up in a house where if it sat still for five minutes, it just disappeared was unbelievable. I remember as a five or six year old kid standing at the front window of our home and looking out and watching the garbage truck pull up, you know, and I don't know why it caught my eye, but I watched the garbage truck pull up and the garbage guys, you know, jumped off the back and they grabbed our cans and threw them into the truck. And then I recall watching the garbage man peering into the back of the truck at the garbage that he had just dumped out of our can as though maybe there's something that isn't garbage there. And sure enough, he bends over and he pulls out my binoculars. And then he starts looking through them, because, I mean, who would throw away a pair of binoculars that were actually functional, which they were, by the way, and that's my immediate thought as well. So I went running out the front door, five or six years old, I'm yelling, no, those are mine, you know, and so he wiped off the banana peel and he gave them to me. And I I went to my mother, I said, what happened? And she said, well, you know, you just haven't played with it for a while. I'm thinking, what, 20 minutes? couple of days? I mean, how frequently do you have to play with binoculars to justify keeping it? And what else have you thrown away? (laughs) My mother-in-law would still have them. That's the difference. So she stores things up, I throw things out, and sanity, quite honestly, is right somewhere in the middle, but neither one of us are in the middle. And so it was kind of like a game that we played, you know? I'd be looking for something in the kitchen, and I'd come to one of the drawers, and I'd pull, and I'd realize, kind of meeting with some resistance... I'd give it a yank like this, and it was like jack-in-the-box, and out would fly 9,346 plastic bags from Publix. I'm on board with keeping about 20, you know? But, I mean, we had enough to restock Publix at some point. And she would hide them, you know, in this drawer. And so, because she's my mother-in-law, because I think that honor your father and mother extends to your in-laws, sorry to throw that out there, hope it doesn't distract you for the rest of the message. I would, you know, use my foot and I'd push the drawer shut and I'd just say, hey, you know what, what's the big deal? I mean, it's a drawer, clearly we weren't using it and now it's full of bags. So I didn't do that. What I did instead is I looked around to see if she was anywhere to be seen and then I just grabbed all of the bags, walked into the garage, buried them in the trash can, shut the drawer and I said nothing about it. And she said nothing about it. That was the fascinating part. A couple of weeks later, I'd be looking for something in the you know laundry room and I'd open the cabinets, and there'd be like 43 cleaned out jars of mayonnaise. Like we'd finish the mayonnaise, and then she would soap the jar in warm water, and then she'd peel the label off, and she'd clean it out. I mean, there's a lot of effort here. She'd clean it out, you know, and put the cap back on nice and dry, and then she'd stack it in the cupboard. And I mean, it's just like full of these jars. And... I mean, so then, of course, because I love her, I'd just shut the cabinet, and I'd sit down with her and say, now, look, why don't we talk about how many of these things we really need? I mean, we're living together. We need to be able to kind of give and take, and I didn't do any of that. I just locked the laundry room door, got a big trash bag out, and quietly, because they make noise, I just loaded the trash bag full, brought it out into the garage, buried it under another trash bag in the can. A few weeks later, I'm looking for something in the garage. I move something. She's hiding this stuff, you realize, Right. I'm just stumbling upon the hiding places. I'd move a box and there would be like 18 empty cans of coffee with the lid on that cleaned out, like one for everybody in the neighborhood in the event that you might need one. And I'd throw them out and she'd store it up and I'd throw them out and she'd store it up and I'd throw them. the whole time we played this game together and I'm actually telling you this for a reason. I have a point. And the point is that today, when we come back to our study of the kingdom parables of Jesus, these parables in which Jesus is saying, guys, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what it's all about. This is what it demands of you. This is what it gives to you. We come to the topic of the kingdom and forgiveness, and I realize that we do the same thing with God. Every one of us has a drawer, we've got a cabinet, we've got a garage, maybe we've got a barn, okay, somewhere in our heart into which we stuff so much crud that our God would have us get rid of by means of forgiveness. It's not mayonnaise jars, guys. It's not coffee cans, it's not Publix bags, it's not harmless, frankly, meaningless, somewhat useless stuff. It's hurt, it's pain, it's disappointment, it's bitterness, it's resentment. It's the kind of stuff that will poison your soul, and if you think that it's going to stay in the drawer, you are wrong. And so the Lord comes to us in passages like the one that we're going to look at today, and unlike me, you know, He knows where all the hiding spots are. He knows exactly what's in every drawer and cupboard, and He comes to us in a story like this, and He starts opening them up. And He calls us for the sake of His kingdom to deal with it through forgiveness. But here's the thing. We resist that. We don't want to do that. We're not interested in forgiveness. And why are we not interested in forgiveness? I mean, we'd be cool with getting rid of some of this stuff if we actually could unload it. I mean, we realize that I mean, it makes us negative, bitter, angry, cynical, depressed people, truthfully. But we're not interested in getting rid of it if it means that we're going to have to forgive because we have a vested interest in our, you know, hurts. These people have hurt us. They have, in some sense, stolen something from us, something valuable, some piece of our heart. And as a result, they owe us. And we even use this language of debt, don't we? We say, you owe me an explanation. You owe me money. You owe me an apology. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. And guess what they do? If they have gossiped about you, they've stolen a part of your reputation, they owe you. If they have cheated on you in business or in life or in marriage, hey, they owe you. They've stolen. They abused you as a child. Think of all the things that are taken there. There is restoration, by the way. But they owe you, they owe you, they owe you. And so what do we do with it? Well, we store it up in a drawer or a cupboard, or maybe it's a barn in our heart. And it poisons our soul. And the Lord comes to us and He says, look, we need to deal with this. And the way to do it is through forgiveness. And to do it for the sake of His kingdom. That's the interesting part. Not because it's good for you, though it is. What he quotes is the kingdom. We're going to pick up our study this morning in Matthew chapter 18, and we're picking it up right after, right at the end of this passage of Scripture in which Jesus is sitting down with His disciples, and He's saying, guys, here's how life in the kingdom works. You know, when somebody sins against you, one of your brothers in Christ, one of your sisters in Christ, here's how to deal with it. He's big on forgiveness. He's huge on reconciliation, and He lays out this whole process that's very familiar to a lot of us. You know, first you have to go to them and talk to them one-on-one and deal with it. And then if that doesn't work, then you take a witness or take two witnesses, and you go and talk to them. And then if that doesn't work, there's this mechanism called church government that you bring into play. But the point of it is reconciliation. The point of it at the end is forgiveness. And Peter, who's one of these disciples, has taken all of this in. Clearly, he's processing it, because then he comes to Jesus with a really profound question. It says in Matthew 18, verse 21, then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, "'Lord, you know, I heard everything you just said, but here's my question. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him?' He's saying, look, I get the idea you're talking about reconciliation. I understand that involves forgiveness. I realize that, you know, I mean, at least to some degree, following you means I need to become a more forgiving person. I'm just wondering how far that has to go. I mean, what is the sort of extent of that obligation?' What's the limit where we can reach that and I can finally go, you know what? I've done my duty, and I can now keep this poison in my heart. What's the line? And so he throws out this crazy high number. Peter's like thinking, okay, this is going to get me the forgiveness merit badge from Jesus. Jesus is now going to call me up before everybody else and go, did you hear this? This was remarkable. This man gets forgiveness award for the year. Peter came up to him and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then here's the big number. As many as seven times. Now that's a big number because the rabbis in their day had said no more than three. So Peter doubled it and added one. Clearly he's expecting Christ to go, Oh my goodness, Pete, wow, you know, five, five pound, man. I mean, that's amazing. Seven, did you hear that? The rest of you should learn from this man. It's not what he says. He takes that seven and he blows it out of the water. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. For those of you without a calculator, that's 490 times. But he doesn't even mean 490 times. He's just taking this number and he's blowing it up so big as to say, no matter how many times your brother sins against you, you're to forgive him. Oh, and by the way, there's no footnote, there's no end note, there's no little parenthesis with an exception clause that then says, except when he does this kind of sin against you, or this kind of sin against you, or this kind of sin against you. In that case, it's zero, or it's two, or it's three, or maybe it's just seven. Think about that. Peter's going, how big is this obligation? I mean, how many times, and what does this include? And Jesus is like, it's unlimited in number, no matter how many times. It's unlimited in scope no matter what the sin is. And Peter is needing smelling salts at this point because all of his drawers, all of his cabinets, his big huge barn is wide open and exposed and so is mine. And so is yours. So how does Jesus explain this? What's his defense for that kind of radical mercy and forgiveness? The answer is the kingdom. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, unlimited in number, unlimited in scope. And then he says, therefore, which is a little connective word. And he says, then the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, look, the kingdom is the issue. The kingdom is what we're talking about here. A lot of people will come to us and they will say, look, you need to open the drawers and you need to open the cabinets and you need to open the barn. And you know, I mean, if you got all kinds of stuff out in the field, whatever, whatever it is that you have stored up in your heart, you need to let it go by means of forgiveness for your own good. And I want to stop and say because it is it is really good for you, and I, I do want to point that out. I mean, I hinted at that, but really, what good is it? What good comes from harboring all that stuff? Again, you become a critical, cynical, negative, angry, bitter, distrustful, depressed human being. And nobody wants to sign up for that program. You know, I think one of the most common fallacies about this idea of forgiveness is that by forgiving someone else, you're doing them a favor. You're letting them off the hook. You know, they owed you, and you're like, somehow you're doing good to them. The reality is you're doing good to yourself. The reality is you're letting yourself off the hook. The reality is you're unloading so much crud that doesn't stay in the drawer, guys. It seeps into every area of your life. To refuse to, be, to forgive is to be victimized in some sense twice. Once by the person who clearly was the offender. And then by hanging on to all of that stuff and refusing to let go of it, demanding that you be paid, like that's really going to happen. There's a sense in which you victimize yourself. It's good to forgive But that's not the basis of the statement of Christ. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven, unlimited in number, unlimited in scope, and Peter faints, and Jesus keeps right on going. He says, therefore, there's the connection, the what? The kingdom of heaven, that's the issue, may be compared, and here's the story, to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Do you hear that? Because that's the language of debt. People owe him. And he has rights, doesn't he? And what is his right? His right is to collect. And it's fully within his power to do so. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants when he began to settle. One servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which equaled roughly 10 million denarii, or to make it a little more understandable, it's about 167,000 years worth of wages for an average day laborer. It's an insurmountable sum. It's an impossible debt. When he began to settle, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master insisted on enforcing his rights. He ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made, and then what happens? It says, so the servant did what every one of us would do. And when you understand the analogy of the story, the servant did what most of us here have done. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him. Now remember that gesture, okay? And remember also what he says. He fell on his knees, imploring him, and then he says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. What is that? Well, in one sense, that's a statement of lunacy. You're kidding, right? 167,000 years worth of wages. Do you want to establish a payment plan? How, how long is it going to take to get this done? It's craziness. It's completely unreasonable. That's really not what he's doing. He's pleading for mercy. He's saying, let me go. I know you can enforce this right. I know that I owe you this debt. I know that it's within your power to do with me as you will. I'm asking for mercy. What I'm asking for is grace. And then we read, and it's like, hooray, because it says, and out of pity, out of compassion, out of mercy for him, the master, this king of that servant, released him and forgave the impossibly huge insurmountable debt. And everybody's relieved, right? Peter's relieved, the disciples relieved, I'm relieved, you're taking the story in, you're like, oh, thank goodness, because you just think of what this guy's been spared. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus, the brilliant storyteller, continues, he says, but when that same servant went out, he's saying, look, he just has this meeting with the king, okay? He is forgiven the impossibly huge insurmountable debt. He has been shown grace on a level that, I mean, it's like hard for us to even comprehend. Mercy, my goodness, there's not a guy who's been shown greater mercy, it seems. He's leaving the palace. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. Interesting language, isn't it? Jesus paints this man as just like him. He's a fellow servant. He's a fellow debtor. He's like a brother, really. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him not 10 million denarii, but 100. Not 167,000 years worth of wages, but about 100 days worth of wages. Not an insurmountable sum, but a pretty surmountable sum. I mean, you know, yeah, we could do a payment plan. and It might take me three years to pay it off, but hey, we can do this. This is a doable deal, is the point. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. It's the language of debt. So his fellow servant, now watch this, fell down, does that sound familiar, and pleaded with him, and what does he say? Have patience with me, he says, and I will repay, which, by the way, in his case is actually a reasonable thought. That's that's doable. That's possible. But what does he do? It says he refused and he went and he put this man, this fellow servant, in prison until he should pay the debt. The story is told to invoke in your heart outrage. And it is outrageous, but why is it outrageous? Is it outrageous because this guy's saying, Look, you owe me money and you need to pay me? Is that what makes it outrageous? That's expected. That's normal. That's fully within his rights. What's outrageous is the difference between the treatment he received from his king and the treatment that he then meted out upon his fellow servant. What is outrageous is that this man who has been shown amazing mercy and grace and forgiveness behaves as one who knows no mercy, no grace, and no forgiveness. It's outrageous. And not only are we outraged, but every other character in the story is too. It says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Wouldn't you be? And they went and reported to their master, the king, all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said to him, you foolish servant. It's not what he says. All right, let's try a different one. You sadly mistaken servant. No. Okay. You ignorant servant. Don't you get... No. What's the word that he uses? Because it's the word that every one of us wants to use. It's the word that is just under the circumstances. It says that his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked Servant, and why is he wicked? Because he got, you know, he demanded to be paid what somebody owed him. No, because he refused to show the same mercy that had been given to him. My goodness, says then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that. What because it's the language of debt, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Sort of answers itself, doesn't it? But what does this wickedness deserve? It's a little unnerving. Jesus says, and in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his impossibly huge insurmountable debt. And then he says this, he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. End of story. Wow. Yet there's something in you that goes, but but, but I'm owed. (laughs) Well, that's true. And hanging on to that, you know, stuffing it all in the drawer where it leaks out into every area of your life, how's that working out for you? Really, I mean, how is it? And are you ever really going to collect on that debt? Are you going to collect on that debt in a way that you kind of go, you know what, I'm fully satisfied, you are released. Is that going to happen? Really? And what about the kingdom? because that is the issue. See, the reality is that by faith in Christ, we are citizens of a kingdom. We are subjects of a king who at the expense of the life of his son satisfied completely the impossibly huge insurmountable debt that we owe to God as a result of our sin. That through faith in that son, you see, we receive mercy instead of punishment. We receive grace instead of wrath. We receive pardon and forgiveness instead of judgment and damnation. And the reality of life in the kingdom also is that that king who has forgiven much expects us to forgive much. The reality is that our King, our God, wants to see us manifesting the same kind of mercy that He's shown to us, and the same kind of grace that He's given to us, and the same kind of pardon and forgiveness that He has lavished upon us, and He wants us to do it in the midst of a world that does not value grace, it does not value mercy, it does not value pardon, it does not value forgiveness, in the midst of a world that teaches every single one of us to demand our rights. God forsook His rights. And He comes to us at times, and He opens up our drawers that are spilling out poison into every other area of our life, and He says, you know, it's time for you to forsake some rights. It's time for you to forgive and to let the stuff go. I want to close this morning by giving you what I'm calling three simple steps toward forgiveness, but I, I want to just comment on the word simple um, for a second. We ought to just maybe put that in quotes. I want you to know that this isn't simple, and I know that this isn't simple. Not even this passage is simple. You know, there's something within each one of us that wants to take this story and begin to parse it. Let's tear it apart. Let's find a loophole. For example, I mean, Jesus and Peter clearly, clearly are talking about forgiving a brother, forgiving another believer in Christ. That's pretty obvious. How many times has my brother sinned against me and I have to forgive him? Jesus says, so also will my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So right there you want to run for shelter to that and say, "Well, wait a minute, this guy, this woman who has, you know, offended and hurt me, they've taken and stolen from me, they're not a believer. There's my exception clause, therefore I can hang on to all this poison. Or maybe you look at it and go, well, you know, I mean, in the story, he finds the other servant who owes him big, and the servant falls on his knees and asks, in a sense, for forgiveness. This person that's offended me has not asked for forgiveness, so I don't have to forgive him. I can hang on to all of this and keep it because it's doing me so much good. You know, I think that this story is a call to Christians. To be merciful as God is merciful, to be gracious as God is gracious, and to be forgiving and pardoning as God is forgiving and pardoning. To reproduce in our lives the kind of mercy that God in Christ has given and lavished upon each one of us. And I don't think that knows any limits. So three simple steps toward forgiveness. Number one, fully charge the defendant. Don't approach this flippantly. Don't just kind of go, okay, well, all right, I'll just forgive them. And, you know, and that's about as much thought as you give it. That's not going to work. Work it through. It's like, Dad, you left when I was a kid. You deprived me of having a father. And guess what? Here's, Here's what the cost of that has been to me. Here is, in a sense, what you owe me in detail. Fully charge the defendant. Number two, drop the charges. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. Go before God and drop the charges against this person. Say to the Lord, it's satisfied, even as my debt to you has been satisfied by Jesus. And that may be something you can share with that person. Maybe not. Number three, dismiss the case and understand that as soon as you do, back will come those feelings. Forgiveness is a complicated topic. It's a complicated thing. It's not always something you can just like flip a light switch and make it to go away. You need the Holy Spirit to do this. You need your Christian brothers and sisters to do this. You need so many of us here today would benefit hugely from some Christian counselors who would come to the drawers with us, help us find them, and then help us be courageous enough to open them and to begin to unpack the poison that's filtering into our lives and relationships. And we have those resources available if you just contact the church office. It's easy. It's affordable. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, look, um, I'm sort of getting the impression that the kingdom has something to do with forgiveness. So, uh, I mean, how many times do I have to forgive these people? Every time. Yeah, but... (laughs) I mean... You know, of what do I have, of everything? Why? Because you're a citizen of the kingdom of this world? No. Because you aren't. That's why. Because you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And He wants you to be like Him. And to reveal to the world His grace, His mercy, and His forgiveness. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank You for our Lord who is our Savior and who is our King. God, we thank You that You loved so much that You gave, that You paid the ultimate price, that our debt to You for each one of our sins, past and present and future, might be fully satisfied. I pray that You would humble us with that. And I pray that your Spirit would provoke within us the ability and the willingness to reproduce that kind of mercy, that kind of grace, that kind of pardon and forgiveness in our hearts and in our lives, not only that we might be free, but that we might give witness to the very real presence of your very real kingdom in this world, for your glory. And so we lift our hearts to you and pray that you would do your business with us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.